And the most important thing about the scriptures is to hear them. We have to be heard and then acted upon. But that hearing, you see, we were talking earlier about visiting another dimension. Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah. Like how we're trying to understand the kingdom of heaven, but it's like a whole other language. And so we need to you know, learn steps in order to be able to get there and understand that kind of way. So what I said is more literally true than you realized. So if you're going to go someplace on the earth, let's say you were going to fly to Greece, we would suspect you're going to use one of two vehicles. You're going to use a boat or an airplane, very likely, right? Because of where I am versus you, there's an Atlantic Ocean between us. If you don't have access to the right vehicle, which means a boat or a plane, you're probably not coming to Greece, right? You say, well, I'll just drive. I don't think you're going to just drive. That 3,000 miles of Atlantic Ocean is an argument with your, I'm just going to drive. No. You're, what will happen if you do try to drive? Let's say you're, for whatever reason, you're on the East Coast, you're facing the Atlantic Ocean, I'm just going to drive to Greece. And you just rev it right into the, you and your car drown. That's what happens. So there is a vehicle, however, to enter the kingdom of heaven. That vehicle is sitting in your chair. That vehicle is you. Not you unaided of divine grace, because you and I unaided by grace. The only thing that distinguishes us between the animals, unless we're in a state of theosis, is our God-given capacity for rational, logical speech. But the truth is, you were created just like Adam and Eve were created to be intimate with God. And the Lord Jesus said very clearly, the kingdom of heaven is within you. So we do need a vehicle to go to the kingdom of heaven. Turns out you and I, with the help of divine grace, we are those vehicles. However, we have messed them up. We've really messed them up a lot. We've messed them up bad. We've messed up the mind, the three parts of this vehicle, the mind, the heart, and the body which we've already spoken about. First of all, C.S. Lewis wrote a brilliant book about this, which I commend to all of your hearers. It's called The Abolition of Man. It's a series of lectures, actually, he gave at Oxford. I'm going to bottom line it. We are now, as a culture, the educated culture of the West, we are so poor at utilizing the heart as God meant us to, we might as well not have them or almost. The epidemic of depression and sadness and anxiety, that's a way to remind people that they still have the ability to feel something. They forgot, so they have to feel awfulness until they remember they have heart. So we've, the heart is like, we just press the delete button. But then on the mind, the mind has become obliterated and prostituted. That's unfortunately the right word. I'm sorry, that is the right word. But what's happened to minds? In our time, My hearts are deleted, minds are prostituted. What that means is they've transacted, used mental noetic energy, bought and sold, and what they have acquired was not a good thing, but an immoral thing. And what it cost was actually the vehicle itself. The reason why I say the mind has effectively been prostituted is because that act specifically not only 
is itself immoral, but the vehicles used for it, the bodies engaged, are actually degraded and altered by the act itself. That's what's happened to mines. We've done things with mines that mines are not for. We've tried to get mines to do what they're not good for. And so we're in a state of collective delusion, effectively. And there are good people that have written on this delusion in different areas. One book that I commend to most educated people, including Orthodox Christians who are already baptized, it's called The Science Delusion by Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. Most of the people that you're going to meet in the world who consider themselves educated are going to be living under a certain set of unspoken delusions. So that's one set of them. Now, Protestants are living under another set of unspoken delusions. Papists are living under another set of both spoken and unspoken delusions. One reason the Papists are very helpful is because they put words on their delusions, which is polite of them. So did Luther and Calvin. And the, but as Protestantism has become stupider and stupider and stupider and more degraded, more and more and more of the delusions, they don't even own them. The Papists will own that they will specifically say things to explain their delusions. And that's useful. And you say, oh, that's not this is. But when the delusions are unspoken, you have to understand this vehicle. I'm talking about you and me, us, or how God made us, a soul and body. This vehicle is so corrupt that it's just aiming the wrong direction. So if you have, let's say, a rusted out Ford Pinto without any tires and half of the engine is gone. And I say, Ezekiel, just change the oil. You're, you can drive cross country just fine. No, no, no. If you do that, you're going to hurt yourself or somebody else, right? Probably. This is not going to work. Or at the worst case scenario, you know, the thing just explodes in your face. Best case, you ain't driving cross country. It's just not in that condition. What you need is an overhaul, a total rebuild. So what happens when someone comes to Holy Orthodoxy, first of all, he has to prepare for baptism, which means becoming a catechumen. You have to go and find an Orthodox priest who will make you a catechumen. And you have to beg him and plead him until he agrees to make you a catechumen. And then if he's doing the way he should for the tradition, he will actually give you a catechumen's blessing, which is a formal service that, by the way, includes an exorcism. And he will do lots of things that you've never seen anybody do, I suspect, to get rid of the demons that are already hanging out in and around you so that you can begin to study the true faith and receive it. Then before you're actually baptized and chrismated, baptism washes all your sins away, chrismation restores to your heart the grace of God, the Holy Ghost. And then the grace of God can come from the inside of you, rather than the way that it does for everybody else now, which is from the outside in. Everybody can experience the grace of God from the outside in, but from the inside out. The Holy Ghost coming from inside of you out, like Jesus said, then out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What they would have used to catechize you in the early church, the Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You would have been forbidden to read the Gospel according to St. John until after baptism. 
So you have to be, as this vehicle that we are, you have to be cleaned up. And in the early church, they would have you fast for 40 days and they would read exorcism prayers over you every single day for 40 days to prepare you for baptism. In other words, you're dirty, influenced by demons, full of demons, probably got them inside you, probably got them all around you, making you think what you think, making you... So we got to take care of that. We got to bring in the heavy artillery, which is fasting and the prayers of the church. Then baptism is actually getting all of your sins washed away. You come out of the water three times, triple immersion. You're chrismated, receiving the grace of God, the Holy Ghost. Now, what St. Paul says now applies to you. When that's happened. That applies to you. Behold, all things have become new. You are a new creature. That's how that happens. How do you become a member of the body of Christ? That's how. When you receive Holy Communion, that's the body and blood of Christ. One of our saints, a big pardon of the Lord and his saints, if this is saying too much to an unorthodox audience. There is a saint from the medieval era, St. Nicholas Cavasilas is his name. He wrote a wonderful book called Commentary on the Divine Liturgy. It's pretty short, actually. But I think every Orthodox Christian should probably read it if you can read, because it's so important. He says what happens when you eat food. You know, you serve food in the restaurant, metabolism occurs. What happens with food? That food that goes into the, your customer's mouth, you serve them the food, metabolism occurs, that food becomes his body, yes? So you could feed him a steak dinner on Tuesday night, on Friday, that steak dinner is literally not in the world, it has actually become that man's body. Literally, that's what metabolism is. When you eat the body and blood of Christ, there is a reverse metabolic process. And yes, this is real. Yes, this is physiological. When you eat food, that food becomes your body. When you eat the body and blood of Christ, you become his body and blood. It's reverse metabolism. That is what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. It's real. It's not an idea. You literally have to eat God's body and drink his flesh where you have no part in him because that is how you become a member of the body of Christ by receiving his body into yours. And what did the Lord say when his disciples have objected? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. It was very simple. Challenge any Protestants out there to explain that one. It just means exactly what he said. Exactly is what it means. It means that. It doesn't mean something else. It ain't a metaphor. It means exactly that. So what you will notice now is the spirit of our times, including the religiosity of our times, is effectively an antimatter, antibody. The heart must be negated. The mind must be distorted, prostituted, made into something it isn't, an object of worship, basically. And then the body has to be left out of the process. Because if you include the body, you're going to start to make some spiritual progress. The enemy's against that. So, the body must be saved. 
and the soul. These are some of the differences in Orthodox soteriology. I'll pull that video now. So okay, cool. Let's go for it. Great. Sounds like fun. And yeah, just let us know what's going on. All right, so I'm going to mute it just because I don't want to get copyrighted. There's a Gregorian chance in the background. But... You can be emotional without Christ, or you can be transfigured by Christ. So I have one of these kind of things that are going on. Beautiful. There's a procession. That's a procession in Russia, which has probably got hundreds of thousands of people in it. That's a vigil served Athenite style with the chandelier spinning around the oh, priest. That video, is, that video is actually put out by a channel that run by a priest who's a friend of mine and been friends of friends of mine for years. So that's that's a formerly local person. He's now in America, but he used to be here in our neighborhood, just up, up the city a little bit. So we're in, we're in America. Oh, where is he now? I think he's he was on the east coast in upstate New York and then he moved to Arizona and I don't know where he is now. Um, but you can find out. He'll he'll tell you if you ask if you get somebody will let you know there. So what would you like to know? That was beautiful and I hope that it made a good impact. It's kind of a well done contrast, right? But what, yeah, what I want to know what something talked to you about that, which is why you played it. So would you share if you what Ezekiel? By the way, I love that name. If you do become Orthodox, be sure that's your name, right? If you had a name that wasn't a saint's name, you have to take one. But you already have a saint's name. Which means, according to the holy tradition, here is another example of how Orthodoxy views things. It's just different. Do you know how you got your name according to the holy tradition? I'll tell you how if you don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't know. The saint who has your name on the other side, he picked you. That's how. You got the name Ezekiel because the prophet Ezekiel, yes, the one who wrote that book, the bears his name, in the Old Testament, which is an incredibly deep book. And if that book is any indication of your destiny, you have a very remarkable inspiration to live up to. And it makes sense, actually, now that I reflect upon you. Yeah, it means he picked you. The prophet Ezekiel picked you. He wanted you to be named for him. Because he wishes to be the guardian of your life. So if you get baptized Orthodox, that's your name. It's already an Orthodox saint. You just keep it. And I'll just tell you when his feast day is. And then that will be where you celebrate your birthday. Instead of the day you were born, you celebrate your saint's day. The day you were born. So. For some reason, I get emotional about it. Like, oh, no, no. Th those, are, those are tears, which means your heart. That's congratulations. So this is, I'm going to share what's going on with you. Because you're vulnerable enough to put that on camera, and God bless you for that. What that yeah. means is, your heart is now, you see, you were talking about the first, the second, and the third stages. You just tasted a little bit of the first stage. What do you get washed by besides the water of baptism? Your tears. So something moved you there. Something moved the inner landscape. You weren't getting emotional. In other words, it wasn't like your mom died, you cried at the funeral. By the way, those tears are legitimate. That's just not the kind of tears we're talking about. When we're talking about the spiritual life. The tears that you experienced there were the tears of something in the inner landscape 
is being purified, you're moving in the direction of nature, and you let go something, that letting go process manifested like that, with some tears. So thank you, congratulations for being willing to put your own spiritual progress on camera. That's a very vulnerable thing, a lot of people wouldn't want to do it, but that was a real service to your listeners. So thanks also for sharing that with me, appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Um, yeah, the video though, um, what's that? By the way, I, wanna, I just want to point out your face right now, because your, your face is more beautiful now than when we started. Every person is an icon of Christ, made by Christ. So just like I have icons on the wall, these are painted by men. You're an icon. Jesus Christ is the painter. And he made a self-portrait. That's you. So when your face was becoming more beautiful and actually beginning to shine a bit as we were talking, this is you making spiritual progress in real time. The vehicle of the body is actually quite flexible. It responds well to the right inputs. These conversations are good inputs for our transformational process. So what were you going to say? Yeah. Forgive me for interrupting you. Go ahead. No, no worries. Uh, even before I mentioned the video, too, I remember having a dream. I forgot what triggered this, actually. So, probably like a month or two ago. But um, I was like going down a spiral staircase, going down. And then I think I was in a rush or something. And then I opened up the, this like main door. And there's a bunch of people just like worshiping. And in the middle of everybody worshiping, there's like this, this ball of energy, just super fully pure presence. And then as soon as I got in, I just started crying. I was just so pure and so holy. I was like, oh my God, I, I just couldn't hold myself together. And then it's kind of like, Kind of same feeling I'm getting now. It's just like I feel like I'm sensing something very holy, but yeah, I mean I can't. You work. Trying to like hold my, yeah. yeah. So if you wish, I'll be happy to at some point offer an interpretation of that, but off camera because that one's for you. For sure, yeah. That one was for you. That's actually it's rather a beautiful illustration of something, quite obviously. But again, that's for you. So we'll. Be happy to if you want talk a little bit about yeah. that off camera. So and that video, you, yeah, about that. Um, just like a what sounds to me is just the difference is because I've been in both, right? I've been like raising my hands, you know, <laughs> in these services, like for for example, in the charismatic circles, it's like um, you're like they're telling you jump for Jesus, and like yo, scream, so you're just like screaming and yelling, getting all emotional, so that you can have a breakthrough or have a miracle happen or have some kind of sure. healing happen. So you're doing that, which is, I mean, I guess it's some kind of some science man or whatever doing that. But um, and then the difference too, like seeing that service, for example, the guy with the bell um, ringing and stuff, or what was that the, what was the exact thing going on? It was him. Well, know, there were, there are a few different scenes in there. There, you saw a procession, you see a vigil in a church with the chandelier. The vigil, yes, the vigil. Vigil, yeah. Yeah, he has a sensor um, in his hand. He's sensing that his so incense burning. Yeah, the transfiguration part was a uh, when he said like being transfigured is a is it's it's like you don't get emotional like when you experience the transfiguration stuff. It's like a you don't really get emotional. It's just stillness, which is kind of what draws me towards that, is looking at this kind of stuff. Beautiful, so, beautiful. I, I mean, like that you said that. Yeah. yeah so. The relationship between thought and feeling is far closer, perhaps, than a lot of us are used to acknowledging. And 
simply amplifying emotion when that emotion is not guided well, especially, is, well, it's not the way to go home. I'll just say that. It's not the way to go. And remember what I mean by home is the kingdom of heaven. And the Lord made it very clear that is within you. So it is an experience. And it might be a beneficial experience. It might be a very negative experience, depending upon what literally happened. And I very carefully try not to cast dispersions on people's religious experiences. Because the Lord is omniscient, and I'm not. <laughs> but. I will tell you that that's not the way home, simply because it isn't the right utilization of the faculties that God gave us, that's all. And the ground of purification and orthodoxy, the ABCs, letter A is fasting. Oh, Americans don't like this, by the way, they really don't. <laughs> but the fathers are very clear, and the example of the Christian church is very clear. You fast for 40 days while we pray the exorcism prayers with you to get all the demons out. Then we baptize you. When this priest, the Lord said, some of these demons only come out by prayer and fasting. Got to get Wasn't kidding. So it's a very physical beginning. Also, as Orthodox, we pray with our bodies. Ordinarily, Orthodox services are attended standing for almost the entire duration. That's the tradition. There are never supposed to be pews filling up an Orthodox church if there are. That's borrowed from the West. They're not supposed to be there. At the very most, they can be against the walls for people that are too old or too sick to stand. And for the very small parts of the services where sitting is, in fact, required. But that's very rare. There are not many of those parts. Mostly it's standing. So if you were to go to an Orthodox service in, say, these Athenite monasteries where I used to live, a normative service in the morning of six hours would just be, that's just Tuesday morning. It's not a big deal. But standing in one place for six hours, if you're not used to standing in one place for six hours, and then you're going to do more later, the same day, and that's a normal day. That's a small day. And there are days where the service will be eight hours, 12 hours, maybe more. That's a long time to stand. That's very physical. Requires some stamina. The way that we pray always must include prostrations. Prostrations are full bows from a standing position. They can be made as half bows and then bows all the way to the ground. It's work. Like it'll literally get your heart rate up. It's actual cardio to do orthodox spiritual practice. You're going to get your exercise. And... These things which are physical, dietary regulations, and these are all in the physical domain. Purification is a process that is physical, primarily. Catharsis, purification, this is physical. Stage two, illumination, this is noetic. This is of the mind. Phase three, boom, down into the heart. So this process has... A physical starting point. That physical starting point is generally speaking what Westerners are going to resist, what people with an overeducated consciousness, a poorly educated consciousness, will resist. They will resist the physical. Perfect example Vatican II 
in Rome in the middle 20th century, formally abolished all fasting. No more fasting. None. Zero. Nothing. That's the spirit of our times. Ignore the physical. And why? Because the devil knows that you can only be saved in body and soul. You can't be saved in soul when your body goes, it's not going to happen like that. So if he can just get you to ignore everything around the purification of your body, do whatever you want to do with your mind. It doesn't matter. So a physical beginning place, it's really important to come to orthodoxy physically. And it's rigorous and it is athletic. The Greek word for a spiritual practitioner is the word ascetic. That is simply the Greek word for athlete. That's it. And traditional Orthodox spirituality has a very athletic component. Our philosophical and religious environment of today does not. By the way, the pagan era into which Christianity came by providence, they did know about the necessity of physicality in spiritual practice. In ancient Greece, a young man could not enter a philosophical school until he completed a 40-day fast. Are there any philosophy programs at any university on the face of God's earth right now that say in the prerequisites, you may not even apply to our program until we have hard evidence you've completed a 40-day fast? It ain't in the conversation today. That was the ancient conversation. In other words, the ancient pre-Christian world, the ancient pagan consciousness is closer to orthodoxy than what passes as Christianity in our time, quote unquote. We're that unenlightened. We're that mind horrors, ignoring the body, the hearts deleted and punched in the mouth by turns. I mean, it's just, it's a mess. <laughs> What our society is made of people. And why, though? Why is our society like just doing everything again? By the way, you know, the transgenderism? Let's talk a little bit about that. Want to have a little viral clip here? Yeah, sure. Have you sure. noticed that the culture is a little bit invested in distorting the historic, traditional, scientific, biological categories of man and woman? Have you noticed that? Oh, 100%, yes. Yeah, it's like they were so invested. So, do you know there's a movie now out from the Daily Wire, Lady Ballers, about a bunch of dudes. Yeah, they, they a bunch of dudes who decide that they they're not good enough at high school and collegiate basketball, and they read the like, oh, yeah. we don't have to actually do a transition. We just have to literally say we're girls. That's it. Like, and it's true. Just actually say it, and you can play. And yeah, turns out we can beat the girls. I'll just say I'm a girl, and then I can, as a dude, play it. So this is happening in the culture. Well, Jeremy Boring, the filmmaker, before they released the film themselves, they were trying to distribute it in the theaters, like the major theaters. And the guilds that hold those theaters are a part of the mainstream consciousness. This is what they told Jeremy Boring and the folks of The Daily Wire. They said, look, you can talk about any conservative topic you want from any conservative perspective at all. You can talk about small government. You can talk about name your conservative topic, guns, freedom of speech, whatever you want. But we can't work with you unless you agree. Stop talking about the trans issue. 
And what Jeremy Boring, the filmmaker, said out of that, and correctly, he said, that's their super sacred issue. They need to keep that one. You can't make fun of that one. It is, by the way, the correct use of humor to ridicule vice, thereby promoting virtue. That's the classical use of humor, according to the ancient Greeks and the Holy Fathers of Orthodoxy. So that's a good use of humor. We should acknowledge them. The movie is not very good because they're not that good at making movies yet. I'm sorry. Although, What is a Woman from Matt Walsh is a great movie. They, they know how to do documentaries. They just don't have comedy chops yet. But the, the notion was great. So why is the culture, the mainstream culture, so invested in destroying things around gender? It's, here's why. Our bodies are biological and our being is gendered. The scripture says it like this, male and female, he created them. So when I, when I engage you as a man to a man, or when you engage with the woman as a man to a woman and the feeling is there, by the way, this is why people like flirting. It's not for no reason. When you flirt, you get some experience of being a man. She has some experience of being a woman. It's only possible because of the polarity. You're a man, she's a woman. That is an activation of your being. Now, it might not be spiritualized yet. It might not be awake or conscious or purified, but it's real. You are. Can, I, can I push back on you real bit too? Yeah, yeah. Say what, um, say what you need. Go for it. So with the gender part, though, some people, especially with new age uh, beliefs, will say that even though you're a man, for example, you may be 75% feminine, but have feminine energy. Which then means that, um, you know, I mean, I'll say that you'd be homosexual, like, you know, 75%. Or not, I don't want to say specifically like that, but, you know, some people have different energy. So I might be a guy, I might have more feminine energy, which may lead me to be maybe more attracted to a masculine kind of girl or a man or whatever. So uh, then how do you distinguish, okay, but the body has like a physical, biological, like, set thing, but then how do you distinguish then people have feelings that, like, of, you know, trash to, uh, like, opposite gender like that? Okay, so that's a good question. The feelings question has to be distinguished from, if you will, the biological hardware, by which I mean this only. Responsible scientists can tell you and used to be able to, and some of them still can, that we are either male or female, right? That's actually the case. The rest of it is questions of behavior and expression and there are lots and lots and lots of different ways to explain how organisms behave the way they do, what the reasons are that they behave differently in this environment versus that, right? But in terms of what the organism is, any responsible biologist can take a mammal, examine it either alive or dead and say that is a male or a female. And it is in fact a binary period. There isn't anything in between. It's like this. If something is an automobile, it's not a tree. No, no, if we know scientifically something is a tree, it doesn't mean that it's the tallest tree in the world. It doesn't mean that it's the biggest tree around. It doesn't mean that the leaves have to be one color or another. It just means that it's a tree. Now, within the category called tree, there's lots of different organisms that are trees. But we do know the difference between a tree and, say, 
an ocean. It isn't like nobody confuses trees with oceans. Remember this tree is having a fluid. No, it's a tree. However, it's expressing itself with a tree. We could cut it down. We can make it into a piano. It's not going to be an ocean at any point. Still, so categories of reality for people are masculine and feminine. You must be saved as a man or as a woman. If you wish to be married, the way that the man must behave to be saved, the way the woman must behave to be saved are different. What you going to do to serve God as a man, to save yourself, is going to look different than if you were born a woman. But you weren't. You are born a man. So being a man is your shot at salvation. Being a woman for a woman is her opportunity to be saved. Yeah, In other words, this is, an, it is a journey inward. This is a journey towards and within your biology. It's going inside. You are a male biologically. If you were to die this moment, and in 50 years, all we had was small samples of your DNA, one cell on a microscope, we know this Ezekiel was a man. It's in every single cell. Your beingness as a man is who you are. It's that way all the way down. So the anti-body, anti-physical, anti-life, anti-matter, this is what the trans movement is a part of because our identity is men and women is based in matter, but we have bodies, and it is based on our biology, which is either male or female. And so utilizing what God gave us, the physical body, is necessary to salvation. The trans agenda, which is trying to distort that in all different ways, it's moving people farther away from themselves because you're an icon of Christ. They hate Christ. Christ is literally the painter that made you. When the Muslims invaded this city here, Thessaloniki, there's a great church about hmm, 10 minutes walking or less from my house. It's huge. When the Muslim Turks came here in the 15th century, they defaced the icons. They chipped away at the icons of the saints, of Christ, the angels, of his mother, because they hate him. Their religion is a religion of demons, so they're inspired to do what the demons do. They hate man. So they hate images of man. You as a man are the image of God. You're an icon of God. So that icon has to be defaced and defiled. If you read the Talmud, that's not any fun, by the way. But if you read the Talmud, they want to defile. That's the religion of the devil, which is behind the Talmud. They want to not just defeat you and kill you. They want to defile you. They use the word defile, deface. This is what the trans agenda is about. It's from hatred. The hatred is the hatred that Satan has towards mankind. You and I can fall and rise again. This is unique to the category of mankind. We can fall and rise again. That makes us envied by the devil and his servants. So to distort our relationship to our biology is to effectively make our salvation either impossible or much less likely. So hence the war on the biological identity, which is the war on your very being, because we are biologically instantiated, and that instantiation is gendered in a binary. Yeah, I never thought, like, maybe, because some people say, you know, when I was young, I know I had this, I've had these feelings, you know, 
you know, I've been like homosexual since I was young. I was born. Some people think you could be born you know, homosexual. Here's a nice old passport. Yeah. Talk about the issue of sin, right? And how it's like you can have a thing towards it. But then do you think in that case, for example, their parents, do you think maybe there was some kind of closet issue with them or could it be like that? Or what? Do you know what? And this what is, there's a lot of medical literature that is not politically correct. I like to read this and then store the studies in my notes and, or just remember them. But from my reading, I'll tell you, you know the number one factor in a woman's history which predicts the high likelihood of homosexual behavior in her male children? You know what it is? No, nah, what is it? High number of sexual partners. The more sexual partners a woman has had, the greater the likelihood, and this is measurable, it's already been measured many times, the greater the likelihood that her sons are going to live lives in a homosexual expression, a same-sex connection. What that means is immorality begets immorality on the level of, remember from the beginning, on the level of tendency. If you have a tendency to steal things, if you have a tendency towards any kind of immorality, be it homosexual, heterosexual, there are lots of ways to do immorality, right? It ain't only homosexuality. There's all kinds of ways to be immoral with the body. There's drunkenness, there's overeating, there's just all kinds of things. Even psychological tendencies. The tendencies are encoded in the DNA. If you come from a family with certain kinds of history, the likelihood that you're going to have certain tendencies goes up. This can also be changed by the artificial ingredients in the environment, which are manipulated by powers that don't love you and me. It ain't an accident. They're not putting something in the water that's making all the men more masculine, all the women feminine and beautiful, are they? Is that what they're doing? No. That's not what the, somehow the pesticide they got in the water that made the frogs manifest the same sex attraction, the astrazine. Somehow it doesn't like make all the men strong and all the women like beautiful. No. So in other words, the anti-nature agenda is demonic. So to distort our relationship to nature, which is ourselves, our bodies, is necessary. But then this gets transmitted down through the generations. Remember, on the level of tendency, not on the level of guilt, the tendency, a.k.a. a temptation. The temptation. What did St. Paul and the other apostles teach us? many, many, many different ways to deal with temptation. St. Anthony the Great said, expect temptation to nothing but temptation to your last breath. So somebody says, okay, I was born with a tendency to be more attracted to men. Okay. That's what needs to be healed. Good. Now we know what needs to be healed. Somebody else was born into a criminal enterprise family. There are lots of them here. There are known as gypsies all over Europe. They literally steal for a living. Like the whole families have done nothing but stealing for a living for generations. What are the odds you're going to be a child born into a gypsy family and not steal and lie? It's all they've done for centuries. The nicest ones in the world 
will steal you blind. Mighty will they long. That's what they do. That's the genetic. Now, does it mean that they can't be saved? No, they can't. Anybody can repent. That's a miracle. But tendencies, including towards immorality of one kind or So we need divine grace, and we're not saved yet. And there's something from which we need to be saved. It is just such tendencies. That's what we need divine grace for. By the way, this can all be changed. This is powerful. This can all be altered. It doesn't mean the temptation goes away. Because temptation is something we ought to expect. The devil's really, really, really envious of us. Envious that we have the image of God. Envious of our possibility of spiritual transformation and dwelling with Christ in heaven for envious. So anything he can do to make us be in pain and then end up where he does, that's what temptation is all about. The temptation is done by the tempter, the devil and his demons. But it doesn't mean that we have to say yes to go along with their agenda. And remember, when they affect a being, and then that being makes a mistake, an error, a sin, that being has children, tendency gets passed on. It gets compounded down throughout the centuries. It just does. 